0: One of the many things I'm thankful for being a pastor in this church is that our church that you guys love to sing, and you sing well. It's a joy to my heart every time I hear you, so thank you for singing and reminding me what a basis we have to say at any point in our lives, it is well with our souls. As we look at this text this morning, one of the questions I find myself frequently asking as I read particularly Hebrews 11 is, why this and not that? Why did the Holy Spirit of God inspire the writer of the book of Hebrews to mention these people, these events, and not others? For instance, in verse 4, Abel is mentioned. Abel didn't accomplish very much in his life. He gave the Lord an acceptable sacrifice and then he died. But Seth, who was Abraham or uh, uh, Adam and Eve's son, who was the forerunner of the godly line, is not mentioned. It's curious. In verse 32, we find uh, the names of many of the heroes of the faith who are mentioned, and we, we, we see that in verse 32. Uh, what more shall I say? Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets. Well, we get Barak. I mean, excuse me. We get we get Gideon. We understand that. We know that story. But most of us aren't real familiar with the story of Barak or Jephthah. Those aren't those aren't as prominent in most of our thinking. And then we see why Samson. Samson's life seemed to be a train wreck. Why is he numbered among the heroes of the faith? Or David. His name is just mentioned in passing, when David. There's so much we could learn about faith from David in his life. There's no mention here of Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, although it does say subsequently, verse 33, uh, that by faith they stopped the mouths of lions, and that would be Daniel in the lion's den. Or they quenched the power of fire, and that would be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace when they refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar. But again, why some heroes and not others? But also... As we come to the text this morning, it's not a surprise that we would find the names Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, but the events cited here as examples of their faith might surprise us. I mean, these were patriarchs. These were Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, his son Joseph. Surely there's more that can be said about their faith than what we find here in this text. Take Jacob. Now, <laughs> let's be honest, Jacob was kind of a scoundrel, wasn't he? His very name means deceiver. He was a manipulator, a schemer. He deceived his father into giving him the blessing of the firstborn son when it rightfully belonged to Esau. His brother Esau found that out and was furious and vowed to kill Jacob. And so as Jacob was fleeing for his life from Esau, God appeared to him. And he promised that he would give him This land, the land of Canaan, to him and to his offspring. Jacob went to the land of Laban, who became his father-in-law. He prospered. He became quite wealthy. But the Lord appeared to him and said, I want you to go back home. And obediently, in faith, he went. Even though he knew he had a brother there who was powerful, who was, last time he heard him or saw him, was breathing out murderous threats. By faith, he went home, knowing that he could be killed. He'd been a scoundrel, yet God was truly merciful to Jacob in, in countless ways. And in spite of all his sins and all his failures, Jacob received the grace of God and, and, and is saved by that faith in God's grace. Or, or, or Joseph. Now, Joseph is, is, is appears like from chapter 37 to 50 in Genesis a very substantial, more than a quarter of the book of Genesis devoted Joseph's life. He was sold into slavery at the age of 17. He was taken from his home and dragged off to Egypt. And his life took many painful twists and turns. You, he, was, uh, he, he resisted the seductive, seductive appeals and overtures of Potiphar's wife, his master. And because he rejected her, she falsely accused him and he ended up in prison unjustly accused and was forgotten there and left to rot for quite some time. And yet through all of that, it says that Joseph, the Lord was with him, which is another way of saying that the Lord was his hope and his trust. Joseph trusted in the Lord. But that's not what this text talks about. We have this dramatic scene when he reveals himself to his brothers And they realize, oh no, we are bowing down before this incredibly powerful man and he's our brother Joseph who has every reason to want to kill us and he has the power to do it. And yet he says to them, you intended it for evil but God intended it for good, for the saving of many lives. And in fact, because of Joseph being placed where he was through the evil designs of the brothers, the line of Messiah, the covenant people of God, was preserved. So it's not just saving of many physical lives. It's the very salvation that we enjoy hung on Joseph and his obedience to the Lord. These were pivotal events in his life, but they're not mentioned in Hebrews 11. Rather, what is mentioned here is their dying words, the bestowing of the blessings of the covenant upon their next generation. Those are stories that we really don't give a whole lot of attention to in our day. We talk of the living faith, and we talked about that with Abraham and Sarah, living by faith in the Lord. But this morning, we're looking more at dying faith, passing along the covenant blessings, the patriarchal blessings to the next generation. And the key to this entire text really is found in that first covenantal uh, expression of the Lord to Abraham. It's in Genesis chapter 17, and we read this. God says to Abraham, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be your God, to to be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. They heard that. They believed it. They lived in light of it. And they passed it along to the next generation. My, my outline is really quite simple. The faith of Isaac, the faith of Jacob, and you guessed it, the faith of Joseph. So let's look first of all at the faith of Isaac expressed in this covenantal patriarchal blessing. Verse 20, by faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Now that seems like a very, sim- uh, very simple, very brief statement. Let me unpack it a bit for you. In Genesis chapter 26, there was famine in the land, and Isaac, uh, caring for his family, knew they couldn't survive in Canaan at the present time, and so they went to the land of the Philistines, and God appeared to Isaac at that time. And we read in Genesis 26, verse 2 and following, do not go down, this is what the Lord said to him, the Lord said, do not go down to Egypt, for dwell in the land of which I shall tell you, sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you, for to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands." And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father, I will multiply you, your offspring, as the stars of the heavens, and will give you your offspring, all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And of course, that final, final statement is a promise of Messiah who would gather from himself a people from every tribe and language and people and nation. So, God had given this covenant to Abraham, and now he, we find that God renews this covenant to Isaac, and that is the basis of his faith in God. You heard Mitch and James say, uh, my faith, my, I was not saved because my mom and dad are Christians. You heard uh, Eric and Jadita say the same thing. They had Christian parents, but that did not save them. They had to trust in God and his covenantal promises to them in the gospel. Abraham's faith was in the God who made covenants, who bound himself with covenant. Isaac. Put his trust in God who bound himself by covenant. That was the basis of his faith. He believed in God and the promises he'd made to him. So, years later, Isaac is growing quite old. I think he was about 140, I believe, at the time. Uh, He thought he was approaching death. The reality is he lived another 40 years, but he didn't know that. And so, in Genesis 27, we read that he calls to himself his oldest son, Isaac. You remember, Isaac and Jacob were twins and they were born. Uh, they were uh, born. I, uh, excuse me, Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. Thank you, thank you. Jacob and Esau were twin brothers, uh, and Esau came out first, so he was the older, and then Isaac shortly thereafter. But in verse two, we read this: "Behold, I am old; I do not know the day of my death." Now, then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out into the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me the delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat that my soul may bless you before I die you remember Esau was a man of the field he was a hunter he was macho man's man and Isaac says go out hunt me some game fix me a feast and I'm going to give you that blessing that patriarchal blessing of the firstborn well, Esau goes out while he's hunting. Uh, Rebekah had heard that instruction, their mother, and she favored Jacob. And she wanted, and, and in fact, the Lord had told Rebekah before the children were even born, the older was going to serve the younger. So, taking matters into her own hands, she tells Jacob, uh, go dress in uh, Esau's clothes that smell like Esau. Let's put some goat hair on your arms because he was smooth and Esau was hairy. I'm going to fix a feast for my husband Isaac, you go in and tell him you're Esau so you can get the blessing. And so they did that. Isaac was deceived by his son and really by his wife as well. He was nearly blind. He couldn't see. He said, you you sound more like Jacob, but you feel and smell more like Esau. And so he gives him that blessing. So in Genesis 27, verses 28 and 29, this is the blessing he bestows upon Jacob, even though he believes it's Esau. He says, may God give you the dew of the heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Again, this covenantal promise of God prospering him, of God providing for him, of him ruling uh, in uh, over his family, being the head of that family, again intended for Esau, but Jacob took it deceitfully and made the Lord and ruler over his family. Well, Esau didn't take too well to that. He cried out to his father, "Is there no blessing left for me?" And Jacob or Isaac pronounced a blessing for Jacob as well, but or excuse me for Esau, but it wasn't quite as uh, encouraging not quite as favorable. Now, it would be very easy for us at this point to get lost in that scene of the, the drama and lose sight of the purpose. But the real purpose of the passage is Isaac was looking toward the future beyond the end of his life. He was invoking future blessing upon his sons. Remember, the key to the text, the entire text, is this Abrahamic covenant God makes, uh, I will, this everlasting covenant I make with you, with your uh, generations, or your sons, through all generations. He renewed that covenant with Isaac, and now Isaac uh, is passing that blessing on to his son, that patriarchal torch, as it were. He believed the promises of God, even though he didn't see them fulfilled. Remember, in uh, Hebrews 11, verse 13, we read, these all died in faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth. God had promised much, but they didn't have the full possession of what God had promised yet. They didn't see it in their lifetime. You know, there are stories of people who work hard all their lives and they're, they're pursuing some goal. Some reach that goal and go, is that all there is? It's the wrong goal. But there are others who pursue that goal all their lives and it just remains elusive. And they come to the end of their life and they're disillusioned and they're embittered. I've wasted my life chasing after this dream and it's never been fulfilled. Well, what we see here is the patriarchs investing their lives, believing in God, never seeing the fulfillment of the promise, yet greeting it from afar because they recognize it's not to be received in this world. They recognize that the promise of God is not for this life and this world only. So, Isaac passes on that torch, as it were, that patriarchal blessing to his son, Jacob. So, let's look now at the faith of Jacob, verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Now, we already said that Jacob was a bit of a scoundrel, right? And because of that, he really is a fitting picture of the sovereign grace of God. Before either of them was born, the Lord said to Rebekah, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And you might say, well, why would God say that he hates Esau? That doesn't seem right. The thing that's really stunning is why would God love Jacob? And then, of course, why would he love me? That's really the stunning reality. And the only answer is God's sovereign grace, as we find unpacked in Romans chapter 9. And so, it's written. Well, in verse 11 of Romans 9, uh, Paul explains it. He says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of work, but because of him who calls. It is an expression of the sovereign grace of God. And again, Romans 9 unpacks that, but that's not what this text and this message is about this morning. So, let's look at the setting of the blessing. It's, the story's found, uh, really, Jacob's blessing encompasses the end of chapter 47 of Genesis, all of 48, and much of 49 as well. At the end of 47, he calls Joseph and he says, I want you to swear something to me. I want you to swear that you will take my bones, you will take my body back to Canaan, where we came from. You will bury me there with my forefathers. Now, why would he do that? Well, because the province of the covenant was still cherished in his heart. And Egypt was not the fulfillment of that. Egypt might have much riches, much enjoyment. They had fled Canaan because of a famine, and they came to Egypt where the famine was still going on, but they had plenty of food because of Joseph's provision. But then the famine ended, and they enjoyed prosperity in the most lush part of Egypt, the land of Goshen. And for some years, many years most likely, they were there enjoying Egypt. And yet, living is distinctly the people of God. But Egypt wasn't his home. Canaan was his home. And he said, promise me. After I die, you will return me and bury me in the land that was promised to my fathers. And then he comes and he calls Joseph to bring his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And in chapter 48, verses 3 and 4, he says to his son Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz. This is when he's fleeing for his life from Esau, by the way. God appeared me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples, and I will give you this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. He, again, is restating the covenant made to his grandfather Abraham and to his father Isaac, now made to me, and he's reminding Joseph, this is the covenant God has made with us, with our family, for all generations. And then he does something very curious. He looks at Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and he says, These are now my sons. It's like he, at the end of his life, he adopts Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and calls them his, and includes them in that patriarchal blessing as his own sons. Now, it's interesting. If you look at uh, maybe in the back of your Bible, you've got the maps, and there's one that's the 12 tribes of Israel. There's two tribes, two sons of Joseph or Jacob, you'll not find an area for. You know who they are? One is Levi because the Levites were not given land. They were given the tabernacle, the temple, and the temple service. And they were supported not by living off the land. They were supported by the tithes of the other tribes. And the other name you won't find there is Joseph. But two areas that are quite large and prominent are Ephraim and Manasseh, because Jacob adopted them as his sons. And so land was bestowed to them. And so, he blessed Ephraim and Manasseh. We read in Genesis 48, 15, and 16, he blessed Joseph and said, "'The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, "'the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, "'the angel who has redeemed me from all evil.'" His own evil, by the way. "'Blessed the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, "'that the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, "'and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth.'" So, he passes on that patriarchal blessing not simply looking back over the course of his life. He does that. It's God redeemed me from all evil. He saved me from danger, but he saved me from myself. But he's looking forward to the continuation of the work of God in the people of God. Now, when we look at Jacob, (laughs) Jacob's life was really a story fraught with all manner of difficulties. Joseph was his 11th son of 12. And how he came to have 12 sons is a story in itself. But he made Joseph his favorite because he was the first son of his most cherished wife, Rebecca. And again, that's all kind of difficulties fraught in that story. We won't get into this morning. But Joseph was his favorite because Rebecca was his favorite, and so Joseph is treated as the firstborn. A lot of complication in the Scriptures, isn't there? But we read here that he bows in worship to God over the head of his staff as he bestows this blessing. That's important because it's a recognition. He had a keen awareness that he lived in the very presence of God. We talk about living quorum deo, before the face of God. Jacob recognized that. He knew that God was his shepherd all his days. And even when he didn't do so well, he recognized and experienced the faithfulness, the mercy, the goodness of God. He believed God. He trusted in God. He staked his life on the promises God had made. And so, in faith and in worship, he passes these promises on to his grandsons, who he has adopted as his sons. Well, let's look thirdly at the faith of Joseph, verse 22. <clears throat> By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites. <clears throat> and gave directions concerning his bones. Now, let me back up one second. In chapter 49, Jacob addresses each one of his other sons and pronounces blessings on all of them as well. Some of the, some of the blessings are not so much uh, uh, wonderful, welcoming. Uh, in, in the case of Simeon and Levi, because of the evil they had committed in murdering innocent blood, they're, uh, they're, what was pronounced was actually quite alarming. But... He, again, is looking forward and saying, my God is sovereign over my family, and he is ordering our steps. And we can trust him, and we can look to him, and we can follow him. So, let's look at Joseph. And again, there are so many things in Joseph's life that demonstrate faith in God, but the focus of this text is the covenantal blessings being passed on from generation to generation to the patriarchs. So, the, the the context here is very end of Genesis 50. Joseph is near death. He calls his 12 there's 11 brothers to himself. That's interesting. In the other cases, he's calling they're calling sons. He's calling his brothers. Now, if you think back, Ephraim and Manasseh, his sons, had been adopted by his father, so it's very possible they were included as brothers in this conversation. But this is very significant that he calls his brothers to himself because. They knew that Joseph was incredibly powerful in the land of Egypt. And they knew it was because of their wicked scheme to sell him off into slavery that he was ripped away from his family. And they were afraid that he would use the occasion of his father's death. Now that Jacob is out of the way and I won't disappoint my father, I'm going to let him have it. I'm going to take out my vengeance on my brothers. So, they come and they throw themselves at his feet and they say, we're your servants. And then the first time they realized Joseph was who he was, he said, do not be afraid. God sent, you, sent me here for the saving of many lives. Is my father Jacob still alive? And he brought them and he provided for them. And so uh, they were wondering, is that still going to be true? And Joseph says to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? You ever see how revenge is an expression of not trusting God. God says, vengeance is mine. I'll repay, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemy is, is, is hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Show kindness and allow God to deal with those who mistreat you. Am I in the place of God Is for you? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and for your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is an expression of faith in God that Joseph is going to deal kindly with his brothers. It's an evidence that he was trusting in the Lord God and the power that he had received had not gone to his head. He maintained his loyalty to his God and his loyalty to his family. And so when he is about to die, he calls these brothers to him and he he says this, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. What is he saying? And these dying words to his brothers. First of all, he assures them of the covenant faithfulness of God. God will fulfill his promise to us. The covenant he swore to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, he's sworn it to us, and he assures them that God will fulfill it. He will return you to the land. And this promise is for all generations. So Joseph assures his brothers just because we're in Egypt, the covenant is still in force, and God's going to be faithful to his word. Joseph believed it. He wants to be sure his brothers believe it also. Here he is. He's the second in authority ruler of all of Egypt. But in this context, he's not functioning as an Egyptian ruler. He's functioning as the head of his family, as the patriarchal leader of his family. And he, refer, he renews the covenant, reminds them of the covenant promise. And then he says this. He says, I want you to swear to me, after I die, you will take my bones back and bury them with our fathers. All these years later, in spite of all the riches, all the fame, all the power, all the comforts of Egypt, his heart was still back in his homeland. And that's not simply a sentimental longing for home. If you mention Charleston, well, that's my home. I have a soft, a tender spot in my home for Charleston. Some of you, uh, you mentioned your hometown, and, and there's, there's, a, there's a sentimental part of you that, that loves to go back. This wasn't a matter of sentiment with Joseph. It was a matter of faith. It was the fulfillment of what God had promised to him, Now, we know sometime later, an entire generation of Egyptians arose, and they didn't remember Joseph. They didn't remember anything. Uh, All they knew is that this Hebrew people were getting more numerous and more powerful, and they they might threaten us. And so, they enslaved them. And for 400 years, they were subject to cruel slavery. And we know the story. In the Exodus, God gloriously delivered them, led them across the wilderness into the promised land, which, by the way, is a wonderful metaphor, it's a true story, but it's a wonderful metaphor of our deliverance from bondage to sin and our journey to heaven, the promised land. But these men lived that keen anticipation to be home, to be their true home. Now, we've looked at these three patriarchs, Not just Abraham, the first generation, but the second, third, and fourth generations. And so, we ask the question, what what lessons do we need to walk out with? Because it's not enough simply to have a history lesson. What should we learn? What should we take home? Recognize, first of all, each one of these men had set their hope on the promises of God. God had made this covenant. He renewed it to Abraham. He renewed it with Isaac, with Jacob. And they continued to pass the awareness, the insight of that covenant on to the next generation. Are you passing the faith on to your children? We cannot convert our children, but we can teach, we can catechize, we can instruct, we can evangelize, we can plead, we can set godly examples before them. We can live in such a way that we seek to make the gospel attractive, pointing out the glory of God in all the creation, pointing out the, the faithfulness and the providence of God in such a way that says to them, don't you want to serve this God? Don't you want to know the Jesus who has made my life so very different? Don't you see that what the world offers is just a bunch of mirrors and shadows and it's, it's empty, hollow promises that will leave you broken. But Jesus is the fountain of living water. Don't you want to know my Jesus? These men live with an earnest anticipation. God will fulfill his promises. Can we earnestly seek to pass that along to our children? Secondly, I want you to look back in Hebrews 11, verse 11, if you would, or excuse me, verse 13, if you would. This is a comment, I think, very applicable to these three men that we've talked about. It says, verse 13, these all died in faith. I read it a little while ago. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. But then he says more. For people who speak thus make it clear they're seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. After Jacob died, Joseph led an enormous entourage, all his brothers and many Egyptian officials, back to Canaan and buried Jacob's bones that he promised. And then he came back to Egypt. If Canaan was where his heart was truly set, they could have gone back at any point. The brothers could have returned. Joseph could have returned. As it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He prepared for them a city, a city with foundations, His builder and maker's God. You see, the land of Canaan is symbolic of something infinitely greater and more glorious. It's the ultimate homeland that we're only going to find in heaven. It's a better country. The word better appears over and over in Scripture. Jesus is better than the angels, than than, than Moses. He's better. Uh, Melchizedek was a better priest than Abraham, but Jesus is better than Melchizedek. The covenant, the new covenant in Christ is better than the old covenant. We hear they're seeking a better homeland, a heavenly one. After the famine's over, there's no reason not to go back, but that wasn't their real priority, was it? It was living for the Lord where He had them. His heart was set on a better home, a heavenly home. This week we buried our dear sister, Marcia Van Steinberg. Scott, we're so thankful you could be here this morning. Marcia was a member of our church for 26 years. Scott has served as an elder here for close to 15. As we listened to the testimonies of four of her children and of her sister, we, we heard <clears throat> over and over again, this woman was faithful to her family, faithful to her husband, faithful to her children, faithful to her church. She served them all selflessly, sacrificially. But again, over and over they affirmed, but her heart, her first love never wavered. It was always her Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they commented that their family didn't have a whole lot, but that wasn't a problem for her. She was content because she knew she had a whole lot waiting in store for her in heaven. And as her heart was set on these heavenly riches, She lived with a a glorious contentment. And in recent months, she knew that she was passing from this life. She longed for heaven. She eagerly anticipated entering into the glory of her Savior. And over and over again, I was able to hear her children and her husband and her uh, siblings rejoice, even through their sorrow, even through their tears. Mom is home. She's with her Savior. Her greatest longings are now fulfilled. So, I want to ask you this morning, do you know for sure that heaven is your home? Do you know for sure that you're a Christian? If God were to, uh, or if I were to to talk to you one-on-one and say, if the Lord took you from this earth today, are you confident that you would go to heaven and be with God forever? And if you say, well, yeah, sure. What is the basis of your confidence? Because there's only one right answer. And it's got nothing to do with how good you are, not got anything to do with, Good things that you do. It's not even believing the right things intellectually. It's not simply that you were raised in church. It's kind of like people have said you know, living in a garage doesn't make you a car, going to church doesn't make you a Christian, but that's where Christians belong. The only right answer is I'm trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. He died to pay for my sins, He lived a perfect life to give me perfect righteousness that I, I could not achieve. And so, God receives me only because of what Jesus has done for me. My faith and my hope and my trust is in him. There's nothing in all this world more important than knowing Jesus Christ. Young people, hear me. You've got all of these these influences pressing you. Chase after this, and here is fulfillment. Here is enjoyment. Here is what uh, will give real meaning to your life. And they're empty and they're hollow. They're like those broken cisterns that hold no water. And you go to them and you look for fulfillment and you come away thirsty and disappointed and for some reason you keep going back over and over again and some of you have done that for years. And Jesus says, "He is the fountain of living water." Why would you go anywhere else? Those of you here who are trusting, you you, you know you're a Christian, you're trusting in Christ. Is your heart set on heaven? Jesus told us, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but rather lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break and steal, because where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. Is your treasure, is your heart fixed on your heavenly home with the Lord Jesus? Is that a very real, not just theoretical, but a very real Hope, expectation, source of comfort, and source of encouragement to your heart. Paul had written in Second Corinthians 4 of the afflictions and the trials that he and his partners had endured. He said, <clears throat> every day we're like, we're wasting away. But then he says this, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're temporary. They pass away. The things that are unseen are eternal. So let me ask you, where's your heart? Where is your hope? Where is your home? Are you fixing your eyes and your heart on the things that are unseen, that are eternal? Or are you so consumed by what you can see and hear, and taste, and smell, and touch, and handle? Are you living by your senses, or are you living by faith? Because I can't see heaven. We can't see that eternal glory. I can't conceive of a glory that is so great, it makes the worst afflictions people can experience in this life pale in comparison. I don't have a place in my thinking for a glory that that's great, but we need to labor in our minds to conceive of that kind of glory so that we have a perspective that says even the worst the enemy can throw on us, even the most painful trials, they'll pale in comparison. They're not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. Have you set your hope? On heaven. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Have you hoped for, set your heart on those things that you cannot see, but which God promises in His Word? Paul says in Colossians 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you've died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Living by faith means you recognize this life is not all there is. And in fact, this life is not even the most important part of your life. Our lives are hidden with Christ and God. And if you live by faith, you can also die by faith. The secret to dying well is living well. And by that, I mean trusting in the faithfulness of our Father, our Savior, the Lord Jesus One of the remarkable things about Hebrews chapter 11 is it commends the faith of these Old Testament saints. Even guys like Samson or Jacob. It entirely overlooks their failures and their sins. Was Abraham's faith flawless? No. He's commended for trusting God with his wife Sarah such that they had their son Isaac. But the reality is they didn't do so well in that very area. He took Sarah's handmaiden Hagar and impregnated her and they had the son Ishmael that wasn't God's design it was a failure but it's not mentioned in Hebrews 11 Jacob was a scoundrel none of that's mentioned in Hebrews 11 Joseph's kind of unique because it doesn't mention any of his sins I'm sure he had some but Genesis doesn't record them but as we read through this hall of faith Gideon, the Lord said, I'm going to give you victory. Because I, I don't believe you. You've got to prove it to me. Twice. Laying out fleeces is not a good way to seek God's will, by the way. And as you read through this hall of faith, you might ask the question, how can these men be commended for their faith when there were times, significant times in some cases, where their faith failed? How can they be commended with for their faith without some kind of an asterisk or a footnote? And the answer is this: the sovereign grace of God. We live in a day where cancel culture is sweeping through our nation. If you offend the sensibilities of anybody in that particular era, you're done. Aren't you glad God is not a canceling God? Aren't you glad God, that God is merciful? Uh, rich in mercy and abundant in his loving kindness toward all his people. And the amazing thing, the amazing thing, an essential part of this new covenant is, I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. So on that last day, the very grace we see demonstrated in Hebrews 11 that doesn't mention sins and failures, but commends faith, our Lord will say to his people, well done good and faithful servant.